Gregoire and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better. Welcome to episode 207 of Smart Enough to Know Better. We are a podcast of science and comedy and ignorance. I'm Dan Beeston. I'm Gregoire. And in this episode of Smart Enough to Know Better, I've got a real cracker for you. And I'm going to see into the future by looking at the past. But before we get there, what happened to you, Gregoire, this week in science? I was looking through some practical science experimenting kind of books for my work, just trying to find interesting things to help kids get their heads around scientific concepts. Most of them, you like, you know, you've seen a few times and you go, oh, yeah, that's quite oh, yeah, that one. That, that String one's, theory. That, that's yeah, good, that good stuff. That's right. You're just getting all the kids to Quantum mechanics. everything is just the vibrations of, of strings in 11-dimensional space. Easy. That's sort of stuff, which is not true. God, I hate string theory. Why did you bring up string theory? Damn it, Dan. Uh, anyway. Uh, I think that that's become obvious to the audience why uh, I put up string theory. I'm so angry about string theory. Anyway, that, that, don't, anyway, back, anyway, back to the other thing. I discovered one that I'd never heard of before, and I was interested we should try it out here. So I asked Dan to bring along a an egg. And he has an egg. I have an egg. And the frog princess told me that if there is any mess from this little experiment, that you have to come over and clean it up. (laughs) That's right. No, this is not a trick. It's not going to be a thing. I'm I'm really into because it gives me no reason to be careful. (laughs) Like literally no reason. (laughs) Right. Yes. Okay. But unfortunately, hmm. we have our egg. Yep. I'm going to ask you, how would you know, if I just passed you that egg, how would you know if that egg was hard-boiled or not? Well, if it's hot. Ah, very good. It's probably hard-boiled. Hard <laughs> like if it's if just have, come out of a pan. If you reached into a boiling hot pan and it burnt your hand, you'd say, I think this may be a hard-boiled egg. Yep. If, if there's a little crack in it and a beak sticking out, probably uh, not hard-boiled. Um, I mean, of course it could be. It just it, he hard boiled at the very last moment. It could be, I guess it could be that. That's I'm going to guess that's a delicacy somewhere. Just pre. Yeah. That's going to be a thing. Get some protein in your protein. That's yep. going to be fine. Pure chicken, untainted by the world. <laughs> Virgin chicken. Mm. The way to test whether an egg is hard boiled or not hard boiled is you want to spin it. Because if Mm. it's hard-boiled, all of the matter in there is, like, solid, so it'll keep spinning around and around. But if it's not hard-boiled, if it's all liquid and fluid, then... um, No, hang on. I've missed out. No, you spin it. You you spin the hard-boiled one, and then you stop it, and everything stops. But if it's fluid, if it's not hard-boiled, you spin it, and everything inside is spinning with it, and then you stop the shell, and everything inside keeps spinning around, and then you take your hand off, and it starts spinning again, like a like a tech toy. Exactly right. I'd never heard that exactly one before. Exactly right, Gregoire. Very good. I wasn't, that wasn't what I was doing. That wasn't what I was doing. I just said the word exactly right. You, I was, you really laboured that first syllable, though. Like, oh, that was a little bit to. of a... I wasn't. Maybe, maybe some part of my brain just puns. What a moment of serendipity. <laughs> I was fascinated by this. I'd never heard of it, but I've always heard the the untrue idea that if you a hard-boiled egg floats, which is not true. It's not a thing that happens. It's because people add salt to the pan, and so it's the salty water that it changes the density of the water compared to the egg, not the there's a, hard. There's, there's a little bit of air in your egg, like trapped in the egg. So that would make it buoyant, I guess. Yes, but not enough to – it's not going to change depending on – they say that hard-boiled eggs sink and – Soft. I've heard all some weird stories about this, and, mm. and it's one of those old wives' tales. Not true. Nothing to do with true. It's normally because they put salt in the pan and in the water, and that changes the density of the water. Salt water is more dense than fresh water. It's old easier. wives will will float to the top. Right? They will definitely. That, that's old that's, wives, uh, unless they're a witch. No, no. Well, no witches old, float. Yeah, witches float. So old yes. wives are mostly witches. That's the joke I'm aiming for. There, did that? No. Did that land? That's, I, I feel think, like I, I, think, I think you that, got it. 
That could have been done. I feel like I may have. Uh, I think he managed to get uh, an intersection of misogyny and and Salem witch trials and egg humor all in one go. Look, the audience can join it together. That's for themselves. That's fine. They can unscramble yeah. that joke. Ha ha! Oh, ho, ho, ho. he's on fire, ladies. <laughs> Spinning it there. I don't know if people have tried this, so definitely should give it a go. When you spin the egg, don't do what I do and try and put it on its tip. I thought it was like, keep it on its tip, and it kept falling over, and I was an idiot. It took me ages to realize, no, just lie it flat, you know, well, you know, on its long axis. Don't put it on the short axis. But I honestly stood there for a long How time. How fast going, would it have to be spinning This is what I was wondering. I like was like, oh, top. my goodness. It's, it was, I was, and I was getting it up to quite a high rotation. And I c- couldn't make it stand upright, even on its flat end. On, you know, on, and so I was trying to work out, do I have to go get a piece of string to spin it up into major, like turn into an actual top? But I didn't. To explain it to the audience, as you just did then. So you start the egg spinning on its long axis, and then you just touch it with your finger. Just give it a quick a touch. Don't crush it. Touch it. And it will stop <laughs> Don't moving. slap it down. Yes. Just touch it with your finger and the egg will stop rotating. Remove your finger pretty quickly and it will start from slowly rub off, not moving to uh, rotating quite quickly again. Huh. And that's got to do because of inertia. As you said, things moving, things that want to. Well, I just did it yes. with the egg I've got here. And when I put my finger on it, it stopped. And when I took it off, it went back the other way and <laughs> sped up. It's an evil egg. Now, I'm not sure whether, because this is from a basilisk, not a chicken. <laughs> Sure, sure. It's a time-travelling egg. It's the time, <laughs> it's the time ovum. Uh, the, the, the yolk is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and, oh, God, there's a chicken coming. Oh, God, no, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Why? I feel, I feel you've just discovered a very niche OnlyFans. <laughs> maybe, maybe not, maybe not. So it's got to do with inertia. So things that are at rest want to stay at rest and things that are in motion want to stay in motion. And we don't sort of experience that on earth because there's always forces acting on them. So, you know, we, we kind of go, oh, well, things, you know, that's, if you throw a ball, it will come to rest. That's because gravity's normally pulling on the ball and it hits something and stops it. So the egg, when you start spinning it, the whole thing is spinning and it wants to keep spinning, but friction is going to slow it down. Your finger applies that friction, that a force that kind of stops it. The whole thing stops. But as you said before, internally, it's a whole lot of goo and it's moving around still. It's not permanently connected to the outer shell. So it keeps spinning to some degree. And when you release your finger, it starts imparting that energy back onto its shell and starts speeding the shell up again. If there, were, if there were a little baby bird in there, it would be connected to the outer shell, I believe, because there's a little tiny, it's not an umbilical cord, but it's a little cord that goes to the to the outside of the shell, I believe. Well, no, or to the, no, maybe to no the hole. air. Yes. So, sorry, well, there's, there's, a little, there's a little thing that the chicken is attached to the air sac in there. That's the, that we've talked about before. That's the amniotic, that's the yolk sac and that gets eaten up. So it's not an air sac. But it's there's an air yolk. sac in the egg that allows a, it's, the- it's, I don't, well, once again, a walk of shame maybe for Greg, but I think you're talking about the yolk sac and as the animal, that's the energy source while that's it's developing. That's the energy, but there's also a little pocket of air in there. So I thought it, it just can... emptied the yak, the, the yolk sac oh, and now, then that was what it was. I don't actually, I don't, maybe that. There's okay. There's chicken eggs and there's lizard eggs, and one of them you're not supposed to turn upside down because whatever's inside there drowns. Oh, okay. Oh, I don't know. I've never heard that was chickens before. Hmm. But we have to look this up. I love the fact that two people who don't know what they're talking about is just madly speculating wildly on the. I, I'm half remembering something. And <laughs> that's that's the worst way of remembering something. It's true. So give it a go with the egg. I, I found it really, really interesting. If you're interested in these sort of science stories, I highly recommend where I found it from. So it's a, by uh, Dr. Helen Sersky, and it's called Storm in a Teacup. And we're not being paid to do this. It's just a book. And uh, and I, I, I was actually quite interested that I'd never heard of it before. And it worked really well. And it's a fun thing you can try at home with your kids or just with yourself or a cat that'll be very bored. I know the cats we have here didn't care. You can actually spin an egg on a different axis so that the top becomes the bottom and the bottom becomes the top and it keeps mm. going end over end. Mm. And, you, oh, yes. and you could, if you could spin that fast enough in one direction and then the other direction, say you put it in a little case and yes. with attached to rubber bands and you spin it yeah. like, you're, like you're trying to light a fire. If you do that fast enough, you can actually scramble the egg inside the shell <laughs> and then hard boil scrambled egg. Nice. 
That'd be great. I saw recently, we'll put the link in the show notes, the slow-mo guys, they were doing things inside microwaves safely. They, they were slow motion. And one of the things they did there was put eggs inside microwaves. And at 10,000 frames per second, you start seeing that the microwave has already started cooking the egg inside, which reminded us about 10 years ago, of course, we, we worked out, well, we explained how you could work out the speed of light based on the patterns of cooking inside your microwave using nothing but mm. nothing but oil or eggs or whatever you're going to use to make the pattern. That slow-mo video is wonderful because you can actually see the, the nanosecond that Gavin Free's mother sees what he's doing to her microwave as she goes, <laughs> don't microwave eggs. Don't microwave I mean, you can. There's you, People do it all the time. It makes yeah. it microwave smell. This makes it also makes it, it just makes it smell like yeah. eggs. It's really smelly. Cooked eggs. Not good. You don't like eggs? I like no, eggs. I just that smell of just that, not cooked. That, <laughs> yes, I, only, I, I devour them. I unhinge my jaw and eat them like I do human babies. <laughs> How about your week in science, Dan? Yeah, good. I'm just going to put this egg back in the fridge. We have all sorts of interesting animals pass through our property. We currently have a bush turkey lurking around, some very friendly magpies, and an <laughs> eastern water dragon that we've named Sparky. No. Uh, we had a new visitor yesterday. I've discussed the carpet pythons that have turned up here and there. But yesterday, we had a red-bellied black snake. Oh, my goodness. He was eating a small lizard and had already had a meal because there was still a bulge down near his tail. This is one of those venomous Australian animals that the world knows us for. <laughs> and I've got something to say about this vicious killing machine, something that may upset some people. He's such an adorable cutie pie. He's about three foot long. For our American listeners, that's about a yard. <laughs> Shiny black scales on top and vivid red underside that you can just see. It looks like he's being lit from below, like he's about to start telling you a scary camp tale, like the story of the snake that has a hook for a vestigial limb. As is good practice when it comes to not just Australian snakes, but all wildlife, we didn't upset it and we let it go about its day. <laughs> he most likely would just slither off back to the wetlands. We have taken to stomping through our yard, though. Mm. Make sure he knows we're coming. Yeah. Uh, but it did have me wondering what I should do if there are, is some sort of tooth-based incident occurring in my yard. Mm. Red-bellied black snakes are elapids, which is like a viper, but not a viper. Their venom carries a neurotoxin that destroys nerve tissue, a myotoxin that destroys muscles, a coagulant that messes up the blood, and a hemolytic that messes up the blood, but in a different way. I love the idea that when evolution was coming up with this snake, it went, which one do you want? And uh, the snake went, yes. And went, all right, sure, you get them all. <laughs> That's fine. We're not going to give you the one that necro necrotizes your tissue, though. We'll save that for the really scary ones, like the really, really scary ones. No, it'll do that. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So this snake evolved to take down tiny frogs that make up the bulk of its diet. It is not enough to take down an 80-kilo mammal. Mm. No deaths have been recorded from a bite by a red belly black. I believe in you, Dan. I think if anyone can get taken down by a red belly black, it's you. I believe you. If you choose to, you'll let it happen. I just want you to roll around on this snake and let it bite you multiple times. Like how many times would it have to bite you to kill you? I'm a pass on that little experiment. <laughs> it will cause significant illness, though. Mm. It hurts like the Buckleys, can mm. cause necrosis, oh, and good. will make you shit yourself. Oh, good. Is that just from the pain or is that a chemical shitting of yourself? That is a chemical, uh, oh. yeah, chemical shitting of yourself. Wow, fantastic. The body is like, mm, we are mm. poisoned and let's yes. try to purge this from every orifice. <laughs> okay, so he is a timid little guy, so this shouldn't be a problem. In fact, many snake bites in Australia are the result of people trying to attack the snake. Completely unrelated, the ratios of male victims to female victims is three to one. <laughs> yes, that the does most, not surprise me. Uh, the most interesting thing about the red belly black is that they give birth to live young. They are oh. ovoviviparous. Ovoviviparous. It's, it's a hard word to say. Oviviparous? Over, over, vivi, over vivaparous. 
Oververaporous. Oh, that's Oververaporous. Cool. It does sound like something Harry Potter would yell at you uh, yeah. to suddenly make you produce live young. Yeah, yeah. Oververaporous. Right. <laughs> ah, my dad. Ugh. If you need to nest on a clutch of eggs, you're at the whims of the environment. Mm. And Dan turning your eggs upside down to see whether mm. your offspring drown. <laughs> Uh, if it's cold or wet, you can't really do anything. But if your young are inside you, you can move to where it's nice and warm and safe. Ah. This has resulted in the red belly black being quite resistant to the changes that humans have introduced. Now, we've discussed eggs quite recently. Snake eggs are filled with food for growth and shelter. Mm-hmm. But if those egg sacs are inside you, there's something missing that you need. Greg? A shell. No. You need air to breathe. Oh, okay, right. I see. <laughs> yes, fair enough. Oververaporous creatures create... Oh, wait. Oh, now I have to say oververaporous again. <laughs> oververaporous creatures transfer oxygen from their body straight through the very thin egg sac membrane. Ah. No placenta is needed. Yes. So the red be- Yeah. So the red-bellied mm. black snake gives birth to live young, and there is a video attached to the show notes where you can see this occur. <laughs> And it was watching this video that gave me an epiphany. Snake tummies are in the middle of the body. Mm. And the snake I saw had a huge bulge near its tail. Oh. I kept calling it he, Mm. but this red belly black, it is a pregnant mum. (laughs) Or at least it was. So... Who knows what's in my yard now? Oh, wow. So you've seen it again and it doesn't have the bulge at the back. Oh, well, I'm assuming though, like it was ready to pop. Yes. Wow. That's fantastic. But check out this video because it is fascinating seeing snakes being born. Yeah. I was fast. That's really interesting. And because you don't have children or pets, so you don't have to worry about them being killed by this, by this snake. So as in it can just wander around your yard and take out the rest of the wildlife in your yard, I guess. Well, look, if it took out Sparky, our eastern water dragon, I would be heartbroken. Mm. Mm. What about the python that lives in your roof? Could they fight? I guess they could. I don't know whether pythons eat red belly blacks. Give it a go. No. <laughs> Just, let's get, hey, well, you've come up with a great idea, Gregoire. Let's get different animals and get them to fight and see which one wins. And you can bet in some sort of... <laughs> Now, your chickens are going to have, have, have a hard time unless you attach some blades to their oh, claws. Well, that, which always surprised me because you go, they're pretty much bladed feet anyway. They, they're pretty, that's what they do. They sort of attack each other. It's very strange. I was really interested when I saw uh, that they, because snake lungs are not next to each other. They have two lungs, but they, they're one after the other. So they, they, they've sort of pushed one lower than the other so they can have a smaller diameter across the body. And that Mm. means that sometimes when they're constricting food or the constricting types anyway, that they are shutting down their own lungs. So they, they only shut down one lung at a time. They say they constrict around one part of its body and then go, don't constrict with this part of the body because that's what I'm breathing from right now. And then it changes its mind and goes, okay, now I'll let this one go and start breathing from the other, uh, the other lung and constrict with the other bit. So you're like, that's quite, Fun. So out of four lungs involved, there's only one working. <laughs> Basically. Not enough oxygen to keep one animal alive, let alone two. That's why they die. That's science. The osmosis air thing is interesting to me because I feel that that's, yes, it's a, it's a way of getting around one problem. It, it solved a problem, but it means in my mind that the baby can't get very big because you won't be able to get oxygen to os- osmify through osmosis into its into the fetus, basically, because it, it only be that's why insects can't get to a certain size because they also don't breathe. They have air come through the spiracles, so you had to have a much bigger oxygen percentage in the atmosphere to have much bigger insects. The uh, the air, the oxygen gets transferred into the egg sac, mm. but the I guess the the baby snake is just breathing normally inside the egg snake. Oh, sac. right. Oh, okay, right. So as long as you can get enough oxygen into through osmosis into egg sac to keep it alive, it's fine. If the oxygen content of the planet was higher, like 30-something percent instead of 20-something percent like it is now, as it was in the past, would that mean you could have these snakes could get bigger because their babies could be – there'd be more oxygen for the baby to, to develop from. Would that help its development, I wonder? Allow them Maybe. to be smarter and bigger or, I don't know. Better at killing us. Better, yeah. 
I wish him the best of luck. It's January 2024 and start of the year, and I always love finding predictions from as far back as you can find predictions about this year. And you can always get ones from a couple of years ago. They're normally pretty wrong. And people saying these people will be in power. But I love the ones. I try and find the ones as far back as possible. Mm. And they're always really fun to see how badly they've done, how well they've done. So I went looking for ones from at least 1924 and further back than that. And I did find some from 1924. So a hundred years ago, people making predictions about what 2024 would actually look like. And It'll I love them. It'll be a 12 hour work week. Oh, look. Yeah. We'll get there. We'll, we'll get to that sort of stuff. I, I, it's, but it's always funny to see what people thought about the world. I bet blimps I, turn up a lot more than they, they actually did. <laughs> Not, not particularly. I did like the, my, the, the two that are joined together, that people in 1924 were saying that, oh, motor cars are going to be a big thing. Like, motor cars are great, and they're only just starting, but, like, there are going to be lots and lots of them, and they're going to be everywhere, and, uh, like, and, and we're going to build our cities based on motor cars. And I'm like, God. well done. That's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, wonderful. The only <laughs> thing you got wrong was it being a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> That was people were pretty excited by that, and they'd be super cheap, super cheap because everyone everyone can afford them, and we'll be charging around, driving everywhere, having a wonderful time. That's going to be great. But the downside to that, Dan, would be the extinction of the horse. Extinction of the horse. Yes, the extinction. Oh, now, that's that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that before because. <laughs> People say that if we, you know, if we do lab meat and suddenly we can make beef in a lab that's like really cheap, mm. then all the, there's no point in having beef cows anymore. Mm-hmm. And so all these cows will just be like, there's, there's no use for them. What's, where is there, where is their place on planet earth? Yes. But we still need them. That's we still need horses for, yeah. you know, stomping protesters. Yeah. Well, I mean, purely from a human use standpoint, Yes, they, there's, there is a reduction. No one leapt out and shot horses in the head. They just didn't breed as many of them mm. over time. So, the, look, the, the prediction was that in the last 10 or 20 years, over the early 20th century, the number of horses had dropped down so much, if you extrapolate that line out, that by 2024, the horse would have gone extinct. That, ah. was, their, that was their reasoning. And, of course, it's wrong. There, there well, are it's off around. a bit. Yeah, but also it, it doesn't take into account that it's not a, just going to be a pure line. Some people are going to want horses for pets. Some people will race them and you can't just go, ah, oh, just race motor cars. No, no, they want to race horses or some people want to, they're very useful for ranching, I assume. <laughs> that sort of yeah. stuff. Like, yeah, going yeah. up the sort of hills and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But motorcycles are good in some places, but, you know, the man from Snowy River wouldn't be as exciting if he was like, there was movement at the station for the world had caught around that the BMW or the Kawasaki 200 had got out of the shop and got away. It doesn't sort of... Also, you just let them go and they'll survive. What, motorcycles? No, no, they weren't. <laughs> they, are, they are raised in captivity, those guys. Well, so saying, though, looking at many cities around the world now, I see there's lots of scooters that have been just let go and just they just seem to be sitting there. They seem to be multiplying quite nicely. Thank you very much. Yep, grazing at a corner. Yeah, big puddles of them. It's great. Yep. But yes, so the horse going uh, extinct. I love the word. They have a word for this. It's called hippolation. Is that like annihilation? But it, with- Annihilation, but yeah, like hippocampus, a horse basically. So the decrease in horse population, it's the hippolation, which I thought was brilliant. So no, horses definitely not extinct, but I can see their reasoning. That's, that's a pretty good one. Yep. What's another fun one? So pictures, people will no longer have photos. We'll all be doing everything through video. Everything will be done moving pictures because uh, cinema was a thing and everyone will be doing nothing but having videos of things. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'll give him that. They, they predicted TikTok. They predicted like, they even really the did. picture programs, like Instagram, are like, oh no, you got to have video in there. You have, otherwise, the algorithm won't love you. But here's the next step. They went, and because we have all these pictures everywhere, war will stop because you're going to see pictures of a war, 
And it will, you'll just be so moved by the plight of those people that you can now see and hear that you'll just stop warring instantly. And everyone will be, it'll be wonderful and lovely and we'll see starving people and we'll give all our stuff away to them and the whole world will be kumbayaing in a lovely way. Uh, well, I mean, there was a little bit of that during the Vietnam War. So, yeah. Where, um, too, where yeah, people were like, oh, wait, no, war isn't, war isn't awesome. Wars. Like, it's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. Yes. And we, we, we reckon you guys should stop. And then the governments are like, yeah, but, uh, we've been paid off by the arms manufacturers. So we're going to keep going. <laughs> and also, you, yeah, okay. We're not going down that path. But yes, wars will continue because people need to kill each other for land, mainly for land. It's mainly for land and resources. That's why we kill it's each gonna other. It's going to be mainly. water soon. It, yeah. That'd be another oh. resource. But, and what we did do, Dan, in the, after the Vietnam War, so more in the Gulf War, the Gulf War One, is they mm-hmm. learned to only show certain vision at certain times yes. to make sure you control a narrative. Propaganda. Uh, yeah, so we just got better at doing it. But anyway, so pictures will be everywhere and war will stop. So yes, pictures are everywhere, but war did not stop. So that's fair enough. I, I, but I, that's a nice one as well. Slowed down for a while. Slowed down for a while. Yeah. Like, and then it I picked even, up. I don't think the numbers of wars has actually decreased. I think it stays steady. We are in the, one of the lowest periods of war in, in history. We just more aware of them because we're just not aware of the, like the ones that were in Sudan all the time. And all, you know, those we don't, Western culture doesn't talk about them as much, but now we do, but happy to be wrong on that one. People will be flying around and exploring space. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. That's pretty true. That's I like that one. That's that's yeah, happening. We're, we're exploring space, but with our robots, and people are yeah. flying around in space. That's true. That's true. That little uh, helicopter on Mars has given up the ghost. I see. Yeah, pile of shit. Died. Yeah, pile but, of shit. <laughs> what is? Wow, it was meant to last like, like five. Like got, it got seventy-seven flights. That's yes. nothing. That's yeah. nothing. It was meant to do five. I think five. Yeah, something like that. And it did seventy-seven. Yeah, and it's not it, it, got, it got lost once, and they found it again. So it's, yeah, it, yeah, but it's it's done. Now. Oh yeah, no, that's easy to do. If you've ever done one of them toys where you're like, it's like, did they check on top of the shed? Yes. Is there a shed on Mars? Check on top of that. The Mars, the Olympus Mons shed. So human beings can live to a hundred, and that a seventy-five-year-old would be a very or a comparatively young person. Ooh, you'd be like the seventy-five with the new twenty-five, thirty-five, maybe. I mean, it's uh, getting there. It's getting there. Getting there. Yeah, we're not that too getting far away. There. And they were looking at the amount of food that people were now able to eat. You no longer had to wait for seasonal stuff. You could eat lots of different cool things, and especially in America, like, oh, you know, making new food. And people went, oh, that's great. And so they said that it was going to be lots of people, kind of like Wally, the movie Wally. We're going to get a little bit, little bit chubby around the middle, and we're going to be a, a big race of obese people, which has kind of happened. Nailed it. Nailed on that one. Or the exact opposite side, someone else went, well, that's nice, but actually what's going to happen is there's going to be so many people on the planet that we will not be able to, if you if you extend the line out from how much crops we can make and food we can make, then in fact, by 2024, we'll be a year away from starvati- uh, starvation with the billions of people that live on the planet. We fixed that one. We fixed that Got one. Got in front yeah. of that like, one. Green Learned evolution. how to put nitrogen in the soil or yeah. something like that. Yeah, basically the green, the green, well, you don't talk about this as much as you do, but the green revolution and we are much, 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 much more efficient at not destroying croplands and getting massive yields out of them for lots of different reasons. Um, yeah. Messing with the cool. genes and stuff, making chickens real big. That's the next step. Yeah, exactly. Like making it so these things you know, are resistant to diseases and don't require fertilization, not fertilization, don't require nitrogen. They can just do it themselves. And yeah. Also wiping out all the insects, which I'm sure will have no side effects. <laughs> Yeah, that that was the, the terrible power of it all. Uh, here's the one I did love, uh, absolutely loved, that men would take on more family roles because they'll be able to work from home because it's due to mass transit, so you'll be able to work from home, and therefore they'll take on more of the uh, caregiving activities, thereby allowing women to become more aggressive and bigger and stronger and look exactly the same as men because that's what happens because <laughs> they'll be able to go out and they won't be looking after children, so they don't have to be lady, lady people. They can just be men people now. I mean, it happened to the frog princess. She's been doing like cardio like crazy and muscle stuff, and she's like ripped. <laughs> Tear me in half. I've got a bit good she, around her. But she doesn't look like a man. When did you last see her? Oh, oh okay. Oh, dear. There's nothing wrong with that. No, no, but 
Well, it is if you if you act up like me and keep getting threatened to be torn in half. <laughs> like a phone book. <laughs> like a French monarch. Yeah, yeah. So I'm interested, Dan, in what you think in 2124. What's a prediction um, in 100 years' time? Human race will be much smaller than it was. Okay. No one will live within the first... 15 degrees from the equator. Oh, okay. People will be much better at building buildings because they have to be because of all the tornadoes and hurricanes and <laughs> atmospheric squalls. Mm-hmm. iPads will be faster, <laughs> but programs will be more complex and so it'll all even out. Yeah. I was thinking about this. I was trying to work out what's going to happen in 100 years. It's such a long distance mm. and... Uh, it's a long out. time, not a distance. You've made oh, the sorry. same mistake as Han Solo there. No, well, you know that's 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 very three dimensional Euclidean of you. That's fine. Um, as a don't, as don't a, just rotate dimensions on me to try to dig yourself out of this. Well, look, look. If it works for supermassive black holes, it works for me. Thank you very much. Okay, stuff that works for supermassive black holes is not relevant to most things working. Relativity is the problem, but anyway, we won't go there. So. The, uh, <laughs> I think it's going to, the world's going to look very, very similar to like it does now. I think families and everything is going to be the same. Uh, it'd just be different, maybe vaguely different because I think humans still have to breed and make more humans. We're good at that. I think human population will, it, it will be higher than it is now, but not by much. I don't think it will be much. It won't go lower. Um, I don't believe. I think it's going to be you know, in the, like 10, 12 billion mark, because it'll all sort of, as you said, people will die and things are going to happen and that sort of stuff. But I think that it'll all sort of flatten out. And I think that, yes, climate change is happening and no one's doing anything about it and there's going to be impacts of that. I think there'll be more sort of wars and things for water and resources, but it won't affect people as much as, I don't think it's going to be like Mad Max, put it that way. I don't know if there's a tech solution for this yet, you know, making, you know, blackening the sky like in the Matrix or something. I don't think there is. I'm hoping that we can come up because I don't think fusion's, fusion's not the answer because, you know, we're not going to be able to, it's still 20 years away as it has been for, you know, for 60 years or whatever. And I think that on the iPad side of things, I think technology will just be built into, it's going to be clever enough or intuitive enough to what we want. It'll just be, you won't even notice that it's there. Like a lot of it will just be built into our everyday life doing things in a way that we now have to control. It will just casually do things. That will just be built into the structure. So there you go. Not that exciting. Oh, and there'll be the president of the world will be a, a rock star. Uh, it'll be Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift will be the president of the world. There you go, in 100 years' time. Brain in a jar. That would make her 130 years old. Yeah, yeah, but she's pretty fit. She'll be fine. And she's, I'm assuming she'll have a lot, of, a lot of Swifties that she can like drain the stem cells from. She'll be fine. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, they'd they'd be they'd line up to <sighs> sacrifice their babies for Taylor Swift. Absolutely. We've celebrated some good holidays recently, Gregoire. Ooh. But not my favorite holiday. Oh, what's your favorite holiday? I'm looking forward to Frontier Day. What's 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 Frontier Day? It's the anniversary of the maiden voyage of the Starship Enterprise in April 2125. <laughs> There's going to be drinking oh. of synthahol and fleet formations and oh. trombone playing. It's going to be great. <laughs> but, of course, you know my favourite part of Frontier Day? It's everyone's favourite part of Frontier Day. Mm. The space fireworks. <laughs> I mean, I say everyone. Obviously, the people on the surface have their own fireworks mm. Mm. and the as the fireworks in space will be too small to see. Sure. Uh, and also, they have them during daylight hours over that part of planet Earth. Right. But for people who reside on Space Dock Zero One, it's the best bit. <laughs> God. But here's the thing that's worrying me, Gregoire. Mm-hmm. I thought fireworks couldn't work in space. And if that's made up, then what else is from P- Picard Season 3 is made up <laughs> and the Star Trek universe? Right, right. Is warp travel a fiction? Are there actually Vulcans out there? Mm. Are the Bell Riots poised to spill over in September of this year? Mm. 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 Yep. So on Earth, we've got gravity. We've got an atmosphere. It's awesome for blowing things up. Just wait for September. (laughs) So you've got your firecrackers, Mm -hmm. which are simply gunpowder in a tight paper tube. 
It all explodes real fast, making a bang and throwing its contents out quickly. Real good for taking fingers off. Yeah. Now, you also want to know about sparklers. They are bright and slow burning. They contain a fuel, an ox- and oxidizer, steel powder, and a binder. So you mix up your charcoal and sulfur with sugar or starch. You add water and it becomes a slurry that sticks to your wire rod. It dries out and you've got yourself a sparkler. Nice. You can also add aluminium, iron, steel, zinc, or magnesium. These metals flakes heat up enough to either catch fire or simply glow brightly to create a twinkling effect we're familiar with. Mm. Then you can add various chemicals to make the lovely colours. Yep. Salts. Yep. Different coloured salts. The different types of salts to give you the colours in your fireworks. Oh, right. So all those, so whatever you put in there, it's going to be a salt. So it's a type of salt. Yes, yeah, like magnesium salt. So what does and- type of salt mean? Because I know of NACL, that's like eating salt. Yes. Uh, I've said something now and I don't know off the top of my head. So, Or oh, a chemistry thing you don't know inside and yes. out? Yeah. It's got to do with the structure of the crystal. It's a crystalline structure, but I don't know. I don't think all crystals are salts. So I don't know what makes a salt a crystal. Oh, that's something interesting to look up for next time. Yeah. But yes, I just, I just know that the different types of salts and what they use to make different fireworks. So copper, some sort of copper based salt gives you the green kind of firework. And there are different salts that they burn with different colors. Cool. Well, the, uh, the clumps of the sparkler inside the black powder and the shape of them dictates the shape of the firework. So if mm-hmm. you put like little clumps in a ring around it, then it'll go poof and make a ring. And if you put it in a sphere around it, it'll go poof and make a big sphere. So there's all these sort of ways of like putting the chunks of sparkler inside the, the, the firecracker part. Right, yes. But that firework needs to go on fire. And for yes. fire, you need what, Gregoire? Uh, you need oxygen. Oxygen needs to burn. Mm-hmm. You need something to burn. You need yep. and you need, fuel. You need a heat, a heat, yeah, fuel and a heat source and a spark. Yes. So I get heat source, spark, same thing, really, isn't it? Yeah. So how do you get oxygen in space? Well, the Chinese solved this problem eight hundred years ago. Great One of the components of black powder is potassium nitrate. It is an oxidizer. There is not enough oxygen in the air to burn quickly enough to make the firework, but at high temperatures, potassium nitrate decomposes rapidly and creates heaps of oxygen that can help the fuel burn. So the only difference with fireworks in space would be that they wouldn't fall down and there would be no air friction. They just go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Yeah, yeah. So some of the patterns that rely on the sparklers falling towards the ground would instead keep flying outwards at high speed. (laughs) It should look... Crazy aggressive. Yeah. But in Picard Season 3, when they do all the fireworks in space, which I is actually a really weird and dumb thing. The only dumb thing in the whole show. The, to make the fireworks look right, each firework would have to have like a little gravity. Like I know that in Star Trek they can make gravity. Yes. But they'd have to do that to, the fi- to whatever stays in the centre of the firework <laughs> so that the little particles like whoosh out really quickly and then slow... And look yes. pretty. Because otherwise, it's just going to look like gunfire. It's, yeah. it's going to look like a military thing. <laughs> it, maybe it's drones. They just have a drone that uh, is firing the fireworks out the side. Just make it look like fireworks. Like that could work. I bet their drone tech is pretty good in yeah. the 24th century. Yep, yep, yep. They don't really talk. I mean, they do talk about gravity. Anyway, yeah, we won't talk about, we won't start talking about Star Trek's gravity or any, any of these places' gravity because it's... Uh, yeah, it's a fool's errand. Well, they just they put gravity makers in the floor of everything, so you, the floor kind of sucks you onto it. Right. That's yeah. That's an odd way of doing things. It just makes me go. What? What you've also discussed here is, of course, you said the Chinese came up with it was rockets. We're talking about rockets because you're going to take a rocket into space and you don't have oxygen, so it's not a jet plane which is sucking in oxygen and burning it and combining it with a fuel to blast out the back and creating thrust, Mm -hmm. you're going to a place where there is either very low oxygen in high atmosphere or almost no oxygen in space. And so you've got to take your oxidizer with you. So your solid booster rockets, it's all about mixing the oxidizer with the fuel, or sometimes they're mixed already in like solid rockets. But that's the big problem. It's, It's keeping those two things apart until you don't want to keep them apart because when you put them together, 
big boom. And very difficult from- to very difficult to do reverse in a rocket. Exactly, and for solid bo- boosters, especially, you switch them on, and that's it. They they go. So once you add the ignition to it. It's combining inside the rocket and you don't switch them off. It will decide when to switch off when it, it all runs out or explodes. And uh, yeah, so these are these are good ways of getting things into orbit. But once you're in orbit, you've got to try and uh, carry your oxidizer with you at all times. And that's a problem. Yeah. In If there was like an Apollo 13, could you like dig out some of the oxidizer and then like turn it into oxygen, I wonder? To help everyone breathe a bit longer. It's not oxygen. It's um. It's it's going to be oxygen oh, in a- some kind of in some sort of chemistry. So you know you know because it's sulfur because we the, most of the planet is actually made up of uh, oxide. Like, you have sulfur oxide is one of the most common things, but you wouldn't you can't breathe it. It's a rock. What's it's dirt. So I can give it a go. You can't dirt, tell uh, me what to do. <laughs> I'll breathe rocks. <laughs> So it's not it's not in a it's not in the form available for um, bio use. But yes, yeah, so a lot of oxygen. I think it's the third. Is it the third? Uh, walks of shame for Greg. But I think it's the third most common thing on planet Earth is oxygen, and not not in the atmosphere, but in the rocks. No oh, wow. And, uh, it's a, there's a lot of oxygen down there. Oh, here's a, something connected to this. So you're talking to the idea of fire and burning things because things like magnesium can burn underwater. You don't. It, you can't yes. put it out with water. This is very bad, and all the reasons you've been discussing. I saw a video recently, which actually blew my mind. I'll, I'll try and find it again and put it in the show notes. Like we talk about planet Earth being the planet, like the blue planet, and it's a, you know covered in water and yep. it's 70, 70% water. But lots of bodies in space are covered in water. Most of them are ice, but a lot of them have water in their, underneath. Like Europa has more water under its surface than of the ice than we have on the whole planet. You know, water is not that weird maybe on the surface you say it's slightly strange but not really you know mars may have once had water maybe still does at some times in the summer on the uh, equator maybe maybe Matt. but we're the planet of fire much more than the planet of water because we have oxygen in our atmosphere mm-hmm. and it's available for fire and fires can start oh. as you said when you have a fuel source which we have lots of they're called trees and plants and yep. animals and we have a oxygen, freely available mm. oxygen, and we have ignition, things like, well, us, but also things like lightning, and we can start fires. As far as we're aware, fire does not happen on any other planet in our solar system by itself. It, you're not going to have a spontaneous fire. Which is fascinating because I, I remember discovering this when um, hail bop hit Jupiter. I'm like, mm. isn't that going to cause like these big, like Jupiter's all hydrogen. It's hydrogen, Surely the yeah. whole thing will just catch fire like a blimp. Yeah. And yeah. not, nah, it nah. needs oxygen. Yeah, it's a lot of Hydrogen clouds just sucked in those uh, those sparks and we're, yep. and we're just like, burp. Yep. Cannot, it can't burn. It, you, oxygen as so a fire is, is an oxidizing event. It requires some sort of oxygen, an oxidizer. And so there are things that actually oxidize better than oxygen. So it's not always oxygen, but mm. oxygen is, it, oxygen is one of those things that, uh, is, you know, what it's named after. And this so, is what yeah, we were right, talking about a couple of episodes ago when we were talking about the Statue of Liberty going green mm, is yes. you can oxidize, but without oxygen, you can just get someone else that oxidizes a much better oxidizer. Yeah. Unless the hail bop comet from a million years ago, when it slammed in, was carrying a lot of oxygen, that may have burnt for a second, but it, it would, compared to the amount of helium, sorry, hydrogen in yep. Jupiter, it would have, would have gone whoop and done. That's that's it. It's it's not fire. So yeah, planet Earth, once again, yeah, done planet Earth, we're the only planet that has open fire on its surface. Nicely done. Well done, Earth. Good stuff. My favourite chemistry. Setting things on fire. No, cooking. Damn it. Damn it, Dan, why do you open your mouth? Welcome to the Walk of Shame, where Greg says all sorts of bullshit <laughs> yeah, and yes. the audience calls him out. And Always there is and forever. plenty of them this episode. Hey! And if I'm not mistaken, none for me. Uh, none for you, no, no, none for you at all. I don't, I don't mind. A, I like being corrected, but also I feel it just shows I have an adventurous spirit, happy to be proven wrong. But when I find you people, I will find you and I will cut you. Let's put that to the test. <laughs> so this is a walk of shame for Greg and Associate Professor Natasha in episode <gasps> 205.5. Oh my goodness. While Greg is emotionally correct... What a horrible, con- what a horrible oh. sentence in a science oh. podcast. How oh. dare you? I don't, uh, I don't oh, have emotions. Steve. I'm well known for not having emotions. 
This is from one of the many Steves. Um, <laughs> while Greg is emotionally correct when he stated that octopuses have six arms and two legs, mm-hmm. he was not technically correct. Ooh. Octopuses have eight limbs and have a preference for two of them to be the primary propulsion limbs. However, assigning the misnomer of leg to these limbs is even more incorrect than when we assigned the misnomer arm to the octopus's limbs in the first place. Ah, Now, even the term limb is doing the octopus an injustice as the appendage is quite unique and semi-independent. We assigned the term arm in a classic case of anthropomorphism, and while this term has stuck for the time being... Marine biologists tend to shy away from calling two of their arms legs. Uh-huh. They are very much not tentacles, as not Dr. Tentacles? Natasha referred to uh, them, as a tentacle yep. has suckers only at its end. Ooh. So that's what's going on with octopuses. So it's not a tentacle. It's a limb. It has a limb. Yes. It has, it has uh, six limbs similar has, and two limbs. And you can call them eight arms, but yes. for now... Okay. All right. Until we find something better. Yeah, that's fair enough. We Uh, won't. Steve Steve says he blames uh, Day of the Tentacle for perpetuating the fallacy, (laughs) Um, but that game does not feature a tentacle at all. It is simply an arm. (laughs) But Day of the Arm, to me, sounds like just a workout routine. Yes. Tomorrow, Day of the Legs. Yeah, yeah. I skipped Arm Day. Never skip Day of the Legs Day. It could also be Dementia Day, Day of the... um... Mm. The what? Uh, to, the what? Um, the what? Um, the what? Who am I? Where are you? Should I edit this out? <laughs> Next walk of shame. Linda writes in. She says, on your most recent episode, 206, Greg mentioned that mammals are an offshoot of the reptiles. As yes, I understand it. I stand the lim- by that. <laughs> Great. Cool. Moving on. Yes, to the next one. As I understand it, she says, the lineage that became mammals or synapsids and the lineage that became reptiles, sauposids, evolved from a common early amniote ancestor. One did not. So mammals did not evolve from reptiles. But didn't oh interesting that's I have to look this up and that's fair enough I and I would have assumed as soon as I said that my brain should have gone it's going to be a common ancestor I didn't think there were mammals alongside reptiles and sauropods I and I'm happy to, obviously I'm wrong and that's really interesting I, I really have to look into that because I thought that they came later I didn't realize that they were just very small and doing their own thing. Yeah, reptiles came off amniotes and whatever came before mammals came off amniotes. Oh, I see. Right. So, so right. Okay. So what, what mammals split from, split from a common ancestor of the reptile. Okay. That's right. I see. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Right. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. But that thing, whatever the mammals had a common ancestor with, that, that's died out and only leaving the mammal lineage. Correct. Ah, okay. That's fair enough. Okay. Yep, 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 yep. Excellent. Thank you very much. So, yeah, I guess because we talk about the reptile part of our brain, but that's not a reptile part. It's an amniote part. Yes. I guess. And and also that's not true anyway. That's a whole dumb thing. When you look into it, the whole idea of your lizard brain is not, it's not, it's not how it works at all. It's just a bad understanding of how things work in the brain to try and explain it. There are different levels to the brain, but it's not a lizard brain and a mammal brain and then the prefrontal cortex is like the human brain. It's maybe the prefrontal cortex we kill that, but there's no lizard brain in the back. It's just, you know, like you talk about how electrons go around protons and it looks like a solar system in the Rutherford mm-hmm. model. Not how it works. It's a good way of explaining it, but it's not right. So same here. The There's no lizard part of your brain. Lies for children. Lies for children. I hope that some neurologist is listening and goes, wow, Greg really balls that off. <laughs> uh, so Linda continues. Oh. She says, I think I'm right on this, but it could easily be a walk of shame on myself on a future episode. <laughs> so Linda is dead right about this. Okay, Could not be more right. Just <laughs> 10 out of 10. Aced nice. it. Nicely done, Linda. Well done. And can I just say, Gregoire, isn't it wonderful that she lacks such confidence and she's 100% right and we cis white men can happily and confidently speak no. such misinformation? Absolutely. I mean, wonderful that's, for us. But not wonderful we, for absolutely everyone else. <laughs> that's why we have the walk of shame, to be called out on it so that we can we can learn something together. 
All right, final one. Last podcast, you were mm-hmm. like talking about whether people just can't learn certain things. Yes, I was wondering, yes. Yes. I think everyone can learn things. I think that that it, you get trained not to be able to learn things, but given the right input, you can. I, that's that's my thesis. What you said is the other person said there are certain things that you're just not going to be good at and you have to tell that to a student or they will bang their head against a wall oh, yes. and they'll never get good at anything and they'll get frustrated. Mm-hmm. Some people just can't get good at certain things. And you said mm-hmm. that anyone can get good at anything, which is sure. basically what you said there. Yeah, to some definition. I'm going to caveat that with to some definition of good, but that's all right. Your argument was that there are, were skills you didn't have cooking and then you decide to learn them and now you're better at cooking. And yep. that is textbook conjecture. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. So I said maybe some brains in certain upbringings and nutrition can't learn certain things. And you said there's no evidence of human brains being different like that. So uh, this person points out that there is a fairly unknown field of study into this called... Oh, hang on. How do I... Let me sound this out. Psychology. Psychology? (laughs) And they make mention of a thing called executive dysfunction, which I looked up. So this is a disruption to the cognitive processes that regulate the ability to do planning, organizing, Mm -hmm. initiating tasks, and regulating emotions. Mm -hmm. So learning requires higher brain functions. For humans, because when we're learning all this crazy, like if you're a bird, you can learn yeah. how to fly. You got to learn how to fly, but you do it. Yeah, right. I shouldn't have picked birds. Corvids are real smart too. <laughs> but yeah, to do the plastic brain learning, you need mm-hmm. this higher brain function. So stuff like goal formation, attention, and response inhibition. Yeah. This means that the difference between the ease in learning something you're really driven to learn and the difficulty of learning something that you have no drive to learn is much larger than for Mm -hmm. other people. Mm -hmm. It may be that there is no external driver strong enough to get them to learn something in the same way that pointing a gun at someone with dementia isn't going to make them remember something they've forgotten. Mm. There is a thing called dual process theory. Mm -hmm. So it's about persuading yourself when making decisions. This includes decisions about what you believe. So the central route occurs when you have plenty of energy and are thinking carefully. But when you run out of energy, which is a thing, like Mm -hmm. that's a thing bodies have, then you're not thinking carefully. You start to take what's called the peripheral route. Mm -hmm. So this tends to encourage you to take shortcuts and make more mistakes when thinking. Do I have a point to that? I think I have a point to that. (laughs) But yes, so if your body can't access enough energy... Mm-hmm. then when some, when some thinking is very hard, you're going to take, take shortcuts sure. and do bad thinking. Yes, right. And thus bad learning. Now, there are some things that are very hard to learn, like set theory or playing the pipe organ. And there are some things that are easy to learn, like addition and hosting a podcast. <laughs> there are even some things that are baked into us, like learning language and communicating. If you have an executive dysfunction that limits your attention and energy or even a physical limitation for accessing energy, this means you'll fall into this state faster and more often and Mm -hmm. the harder things to learn will be extra hard for you. But let's put aside executive dysfunction for a moment and look at people saying that they can't do maths because that's where this all stemmed from, isn't it? Uh, Or code, wasn't it? It was actually maths, a maths teacher, yes. But yeah, yeah, Mm. it's okay. There are some people who can't do maths. Right. They, they have what's called dyscalculia. It is math dyslexia. So if the intraparietal sulcus doesn't work properly, if that's mm-hmm. a bit in the brain, they mm-hmm. can't do maths. Mm-hmm. Uh, they struggle with maths. They can still comprehend time and measurement and spatial re- reasoning, but their high-level math skills are undercut. Sure. Now, this affects 3 to 6% of the population. This is distinct to dyslexia, which has more to do with the corpus callosum. Like there are bits in our brain, and if if you if you switch that little bit off, it, it just can't do a certain type of thinking. That blows my brain. Like my brain feels like just a big mush of thoughts. Sure. The notion that there are like physical bits in there, like there are bits in my body where I you cut off my fingers and I can't pick things up. 
Yeah, blows yeah. my the the same mush. Suddenly, suddenly, or they could be someone could be inside your brain. And when they do brain surgery, they they ask you to keep talking or sing, so they know they're not cutting the wrong things and cauterizing the wrong bits. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But the, keep yeah, playing the banjo. <laughs> these are um, physical parts of the brain that can develop one way or another. So saying that everyone can learn to read or learn to do maths is a bit like saying everyone can learn to dunk a basketball. But the thing is, this doesn't lessen their abilities. I have a friend who has dyslexia. Mm. When he reads a sentence, all the pieces of the sentence hit his brain at the same time. And reading a sentence requires you to ingest it from beginning to end. But at the same time, he's amazing at rigging a digital puppet. Like You know all those like digital mm. characters and stuff? They need to be rigged up so that when you move the hand, everything else follows it and stuff. And, yep. and, and the whole body moves around. And yep. so... He can kind of hold all of that information in his head at the same time, which is very different to understanding a sentence from beginning to end. And he's really good at that. But, Gregoire, I understand where you're coming from. Because much more than 6% of people say they can't do maths. And as a teacher, you want people to meet their potential. Mm. Teachers need to be able to read people and understand how to teach all sorts of brains, no matter which bits are big and powerful and which bits are spindly and which bits are broken it is a very difficult job but that's why teachers around the world are so well respected and why they're paid (laughs) such enormous amounts of money sure sure and who did this come from dan i have not Shared their name. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So I thought it wasn't you. It wasn't just you. They sort of shared stuff with me, and I was like, I guess I better look into this. A rabbit hole I went down. Okay. Executive dysfunction. Absolutely. I have it myself. So I understand executive dysfunction. It means that I have to work harder on certain things. It doesn't mean I can't do the thing. And, and being aware I have executive dysfunction in certain areas means that I can and have had to work much harder than someone else in certain areas to overcome that once again not to be the best in the world at something but to become proficient and so that you would never notice that i was once very very bad at this thing and found it very very hard to do knowing that i have executive dysfunction was a very useful thing for me because it meant that i could change my learning style slash teaching styles for this to get around that problem it didn't stop me from doing it it just meant i required a different teaching style and learning style i understand what you're saying i don't agree um <laughs> so no I, I really don't i really don't at all from a teaching point of view so it's and the a lot of the other ones absolutely I will give you that there are the guy who was tamping on a railway line and took a a metal pole to the to the eyeball to the back of his brain of course it's going to and he lived for many years afterwards of course it's going to do damage to the brain this is brain damage or this is a, a an actual problem as you said with the brain which mm-hmm. can as it with dementia you made a very good point uh, you can't teach a person with dementia so I I will give you that one entirely I will go yep that's fine if if someone has some sort of organic brain damage or brain dysfunction then yes, you can't, there are probably some things they can't do. In, in fact, live might be one of them later on. But I think that they, that's technically correct, the best kind of correct, but missing the point, which is across the bell curve of human experience and, and human physiology and teaching people, people can learn skills. Some people will find it very hard to learn a skill and by becoming good, I didn't mean great. I just meant they could do the skill. Mm-hmm. So just a caveat on that. On the outsides of that bell curve, there are going to be people with, with brain damage or terrible things like fetal alcohol syndrome. So from development and that's, which is a type of brain damage. And those people will not be able to reach the full potential of their genetics or whatever you want to call it could have been. I'll give you that as well. But I think the vast majority of people you can, and for the people who aren't that badly brain damaged or don't, that's not brain damaged, people aren't brain damaged, people like myself who have these different ways our brain's working, by understanding it and bringing it into the learning style, you can actually get around this problem of the way we teach normally isn't going to work that well for that person. And to go back to the original concept of that teacher saying, well, no, we've got to let that person know that it's okay to fail is for me very frustrating because I say to myself, no, no, it's not the failure of the student not not to do a thing. It's a failure of the education system and the teacher, not that teacher. I'm not having a go at that teacher, but the idea of we need more resources, time and understanding of this weird thing called psychology to, to be able to teach better. 
I very much like that you who come from a teaching background are so passionate about that because that's a that's such a lovely point for a teacher to come from because you don't want your teachers giving up on you. No, and and sometimes you have to. This is this is the heartbreaking thing. The, the real talk with Gregoire. As a teacher, sometimes you have to give up on them, and it's gut break, gut wrenching, gut breaking, gut breaking, brain wrenching because you don't have time, and you don't, and there are only so many hours in the day, and at some point you've got to have a life, and you've got to go home. And so many teachers who are much better than I am give far too much of a shit and uh, and give their lives up for students. And they're the ones that get wonderful movies making up, you know, Captain, my Captain kind of nonsense. Uh, <laughs> and I commend them all, absolutely, uh, but it shows a problem in the system that we you do have to let some of them go and, and they will haunt you for the rest of your life <laughs> because you know that if you were given the resources and time or someone was giving it, then that student could achieve going back to my original thesis that student could achieve but it would just take a lot more money and time and expertise to do it sounds like teachers are just a bit lazy <laughs> maybe if they didn't knock off at three in the afternoon every day don't even don't even <laughs> don't even i will take a lot of Mm. It's quite funny. I haven't worked in a classroom in an, I guess a classroom as in a teacher for a class. I mean, I've done a lot of teaching, but more science communication, but for over a, well over a decade now. And yet the chip on my show, my soul about that is so, Oh, if you, if you want to get slapped in the snoot, you come and tell me how lazy teachers are to my face in a realistic way. And, and my hand, my executive dysfunction will land all upon you in a great, great angry manner. Uh, I come from a uh, family of teachers and uh, <laughs> I have learned to, that's where I learned how to do mischief. <laughs> to go back to this, whoever this person was and your, your amazing work in it, I understand what you're saying. And it really shows how much extra work it requires to help someone become proficient in something that they want to become proficient at. And just because you're proficient at something easily, it came to you inverted commas easily doesn't mean it could have just been good genetics, good teaching, you know, the right place, the right time, interest. It could also be that the someone else that you're having a go at has something different in their brain, their psychology, their makeup that you don't understand. So uh, this ties into the other podcast thing. Be kind when you're helping people learn stuff. And if you are learning stuff from the point of view of the learner, celebrate any gains you've had. Don't go, oh, I can't be as mischievous as Dan Beeston. I can only be as mischievous as Gregoire. And that's okay because I've worked at being a more mischievous little monkey. And one day I might be as mischievous as Dan Beeston, but I might not. And I should still be able to be. Just be slightly more mischievous every single day. Exactly right. That's right. That's why I'm going to poop on your your, uh, porch and light it on fire tomorrow and blame the snake. (laughs) It's a classic. I mean, snake poo is obviously not human poo. Like they are very different. If you ever, there are, I, I also watch videos of snakes pooing, and oh. wow, wow, snake poo is is pungent in a way. I don't know. It's just different chemicals, obviously. In there. It's pungent, very pungent. That, that's an extrinsic way to teach people. <laughs> don't don't make me bring the snake poo. That's right. You have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. And only Dan at smartenough.org. It's all about Dan. Music by Dan Beeston. <laughs> Hosting by Dan Beeston. It's true. Editing by Dan Beeston. Written by, Gre- by Dan Beeston with Gregoire. Gregoire bought the errors. <laughs> <laughs> you can get along to the website and clicky on the buttonsies. One of the buttons is to give us money, if you like. You should drop some money in the tip jar if you want to do that. People do. It, it still amazes me. <laughs> Doesn't amaze oh, me. Oh, we sold shirts. Oh, my goodness, Dan. We haven't talked about shirts for ages. I shouldn't tell you. I just, actually, it's, honestly, I didn't listen. I didn't tell Dan this at all. We, we've sold two shirts in the, since Christmas. I don't know what's going on. Two different shirts. Cool. Yeah. So you, you can buy shirts? You can buy shirts. They're great yep. shirts. They are good shirts. If you... God, we're in. It's gotten too hot in this room. <laughs> there is a patron a patreon page and if you're a patron and you're a second tier type patron i'll read your name out and that's what i'm gonna do now big thank you to mariana scott ilana mitchell av greenbury ivan joshua devland moreno andrew potts andrew trousdale liz y matthew toy 
Do you like Matthew Toy? I've never heard the a surname yeah. Toy before. That's right, yeah. I wonder if he's like real stern. <laughs> Why would you ask that on the podcast where he's going to listen? So he'll answer me. Matt Ewers, <laughs> Steve Stewart, Lindsay Jenkinson, Andrew Whitehurst, Britta Rogoski, and Gronya Maguire. Thank you all so much for being second-tier patrons. There is also a third-tier of patrons. I have to insult them. These insults are going to be about dentistry. Oh, okay. <clears throat> Mikhail Kidar, you fail to be incisive, but you also lack wisdom. Oh, but, oh that's very, that's very clever. <laughs> it is clever. It is clever. Yeah. That's right. Steve Eichenhout, you could be replaced with an acrylic duplicate and no one would notice or care. <laughs> oh. And finally, Tom Siri, you're like a six-month checkup reminder. Even when you're right in front of me, I've already completely ignored your existence. <laughs> and a big thank you to these pennies under my pillow. Scott Driscoll, Michael Barnes, Eric Wilson, Al Batson, Morton O'Hare, and Joey Wesley. Thank you all so much for being third-tier patrons of the podcast. Woo-woo. And as we always like to say... Ovoviviparous! Ovoviviparous. I don't like to say that at all. I never like to say that. Ovoviviparous! I don't have any walks of shames. No one sent me any walks of shames. You don't say anything wrong, it seems. Ascended. I mean, I do say things that are wrong, but they're like morally wrong rather than factually wrong. (laughs) Yes, true walks of shame instead of just scientific walks of shame. We talk about rashes and chemistry, Mm. you know, and getting rid of those sort of things. They said, yeah, just don't wash as much. You'll be fine. Just wash with water. You'll be fine. And I was like, oh, (laughs) that was just one doctor, but there you go. Well, they said they were a doctor. But they had all the stuff, and they were under this bridge that, 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 that with a big sign that said "Medical Bridge." That's true. Well, I, I was buying all my meth from them, so I hope they were a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> if you happen to be the smartest person in the room, yeah, yeah, go the on. room is still going to be smarter than you. Because in working with the room, I mean, sorry, is going to be, lead to a better outcome than than you on your own. I'm by myself in this room, so I'm the smartest person in this room. True. Fair enough. And I think I've just pro- proven that. <laughs> well done. Figuratively tipping his trilby at me as we speak. <laughs> is that, Can you prove you're a dickhead? What are your qualifications? Well, this is my <laughs> opinions about flags. That'll do, sir. <laughs>